Well, on this communion Sunday, um, we turn to John chapter 18. Sunday mornings, we're working through John's passion narrative, his account of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And this morning, uh, we're on the trial of Jesus before Pilate, which goes from chapter 18, verse 28, through to chapter 19, verse 16. And the description of Jesus' trial before Pilate in John's Gospel is, is twice the length of Matthew and Mark, and one and a half times longer than Luke. And, and therefore, we, we gauge from that that for John, the writer of this Gospel, it's uh, really significant. And uh, John, as we'll see, has a very important point to teach us about the nature of power. So let's read God's Word together. John chapter 18, verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they started back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Pilate took Jesus, had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis of a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. And when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. 
Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realise I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus said, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Should I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, when we read the accounts of Jesus' death in the Gospels, what uh, we learn is that the Gospel is told in the narrative. The Gospel is told as the events of history unfolded. They're very powerful passages of Scripture. And they need all our attention. And we need God's help for that. So let me pray for us. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would arm himself with his sword divided amongst us. And we pray, Lord, that we would understand, perhaps in a new way, perhaps with greater clarity, perhaps for the very first time, where true power is to be found, both now and for eternity. Help us to concentrate. Help us to listen and help us to live it out in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what is a Bible passage all about? Well, when you read this passage, it's clear what John, the writer's major point is. This passage is loaded with power words. Let me just show you that. Verse 28, at the beginning, Jesus is led to the palace the praetorian, the place of power. Verse 29, Pilate, the man of power, 14 times is mentioned by name. Every time you read the note, Pilate means power. Verse 31, judge him. 33, king of the Jews. 36, my kingdom. 37, you are a king, I am a king. 39, the king. 19, two, a crown, a robe, hail, King of the Jews. 19.5, the crown and the robe. 19.7, son of God. 10 and 11, don't you realise I have power? You would have no power. 12, Caesar, Caesar. 13, judge's seat. 14, here is your king. 15, should I crucify your king? I have no king. Power words. King, Caesar, Pilate, kingdom, Power, judgment seat, Gabbatha, palace, power, power is the theme. John the writer has one big point he wants to get across in this passage, and that is to contrast worldly power, or power according to how the world understands power to work. To contrast that with the power of truth 
or power according to the kingdom of God. Now, that's John's big point. Hence, I prayed that we would understand as we leave where true power is to be found and what it's what it looks like, feels like. Something else as we uh, kind of get into this passage, and that is to see how John uh, writes it or structures it. He divides it up into seven scenes that take place alternately um, inside and outside Pilate's um, palace. Just look with me and I'll show you verse... 28 to 32 of chapter 18 is outside the palace. The second scene begins at verse 33. Pilate then went back inside. Then 38, just look a bit further down. What is truth, Pilate asked. With this he went out again. Chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. That's back inside the palace. Verse 4 of chapter 19, once more Pilate came out. See the oscillation of being inside and outside. Why is John recording that? Well, it happened. What's the point John's trying to help us to see? Seven scenes, the way these books are written, seven points you to the middle one. What's the middle one? Chapter 19, verses 1 to 3, a coronation. Crown of thorns, purple robe, hail, king. The coronation of the king is the heart of this passage. And there we see, in a strange, otherworldly way, the power of truth. Now, let's explore the contrast between worldly power and the power of truth. You'll see two headings on the sheet worldly power and the power of truth. Firstly, worldly power, according to how the world understands power. And what I want you to do is I take you through the text and show you worldly power in Pilate and in the Jewish religious leaders. Try to, 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 to apply in your own minds, your own sense and feeling of worldly power, whether it's the power of the media or, 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 or simply in day-to-day life when worldly power begins to exert itself, where we work, perhaps as, as students, the kind of way people get on in the world. What does worldly power look like? What does it feel like to exercise? It's lurking in all our hearts. What does it feel like to be on the receiving end of it? Well, Pilate epitomizes worldly power. He is the Roman governor. He is the man of power who resides in the palace, the place of power. What can we learn about power from him? Well, worldly power is, we learn from Pilate, dismissive. It seems initially that Pilate wants to have nothing to do with Jesus. He's not interested. It's kind of dismissive or or, or arrogant. Chapter 18, verse 31, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. He doesn't want to know. And in verses 33 to 37, the first of two one-to-one conversations Pilate has with Jesus, verse 33, Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? What's Jesus saying? I think the Lord Jesus is asking Pilate what he means. He's saying, Pilate, Are you talking in terms of how the world understands power or or have you grasped that I'm a different kind of king? Pilate's answer is dismissive. 
disinterested racist. How does Pilate say to him? I think something like, am I a Jew? He's talking to me as if I were a Jew? Is that what you're suggesting? Insulting me with stupid questions. I think we hear that dismissiveness again in Pilate's question, verse 38. What is truth? What is truth? As one old writer puts it, what is truth suggesting Pilate and would not stay for an answer? What is truth? Whatever, I have power, I have buckets of power. What are you talking about when you talk about truth? Dismissiveness. And as Christians, we, 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 we know and understand, we feel what that kind of power is like, worldly power, dismissiveness of Christians. What is truth? What do I care? You're deluded. You really a Christian? Right, one aspect of Pilate's dismissiveness of Jesus is he just doesn't understand you, he doesn't get him. The irony here is that uh, Pilate gets Barabbas. He understands Barabbas. They're in the same language. They, they operate in the realm of worldly power. He just doesn't get Jesus. You feel that? Sometimes people just don't, you know, Christians just don't get what you think. They don't understand. Pilate is also arrogant. Verse nine, 10 of chapter 19, Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realise I have power? to either free you or crucify you, power over life and death. Verse 13, Pilate brought Jesus out and sat down, and the judges seated a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Pilate sits in judgment over Jesus. Worthy power is dismissive, arrogant, and aggressive. It uses force, coercion. Verse 1 of chapter 19, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. That's a, a strange thing to do to a man. You again and again say is innocent. But it's worthy power. Teach him a lesson and others like him. And eventually, of course, Pilate's aggression gives Jesus over to be crucified, the coolest of all deaths, for an innocent man. Now, ultimately, and we see this in Pilate, worldly power is self-centered and self-advancing. And that's, in many ways, how our world ticks. It's in our hearts. It's in our human natures. It's in our workplaces, our universities, in, in social circles, in, in, in all walks of life. Worldly power that manifests itself in the human art is self-centered and self-advancing. Pilate believed Jesus to be innocent. I find no basis for charges against him. He states that three times. He believed Jesus to be innocent, but handed him over in the end to be crucified. What swung it for Pilate? Pilate, I guess, could have let him off. What swung it? Well, the Jewish religious leaders played their trump card. Chapter 19, verse 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, here's the trump card. If you let him go, you are no friend of Caesar. It's a powerful phrase, isn't it? You're no friend of Caesar. As one writer puts it, trying to make it in contemporary context, it's the establishment card. Come on, Pilate, just don't risk it. Don't risk it. You're no friend of Caesar. You're the governor of Judea, but that's all you're going to get. 
if you do this. And we know that to be true in human nature, don't we? Maybe at work, you've just watched the kind of self-advancement and self-promotion of people. Maybe you've been caught up in it. It's a risk, isn't it, for us as Christians? We also see the characteristics of worldly power in the Jewish religious leaders. It's quite, it's quite shocking, I think, when we read this. I mean, Jesus came to them as their Messiah. And they are, they are hypocritical. Just look at the beginning of the account, chapter 18, verse 28. The Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas, the high priest, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the, the Passover. So they, they, they put Jesus into the palace, but they won't go in. Why? Because it's a Gentile palace, and they don't want to, get, uh, they don't want to be, be tarnished with that because they want to be perfectly uh, clean in order to sacrifice the Passover lamb to eat. And yet they put the Passover lamb into the palace. It's a form of godliness, denying its power. It's religion, not gospel. And they're deceitful. Pilate asked them, verse 29 of chapter 18, what charges are you bringing against this man? Their answer, and here's a, a brilliant example of manipulative spin. What are the charges? If he were not a criminal, we would not have handed him over to you. They don't answer the question. Manipulative. And we've already seen their phrase, you are no friend of Caesar if you let him go. And no doubt they would have been manipulating the crowd, you know, moving amongst the crowd, saying, look, let's get a crowd here, shout all the louder. You know, they never say crucify, they shout it. Power of the crowd, the power of the rhetoric. Crucify, crucify, like an incantation. And their actions are profoundly shocking. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 5. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, here is the man... You know, God puts into the mouths of these characters phrases that mean far more than they understand. Here is the man. Now, what a phrase that is for a Jewish audience. Here is the man. Pilate brings Jesus out onto the stone pavement. Here is the man. Here is the son of man. Here is the, the second Adam. Here is the Messiah. As soon as they saw him, before they even heard Pilate's words, they shouted to drown out the words, here is the man, crucify, crucify. That is profoundly shocking. And then, verse 14b of chapter 19, they say, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? And then this phrase says it all, we have no king but Caesar. And these religious leaders live and breathe and operate in the realm of Pilate and in the realm of the world. Worldly power. Now we see it in, as I said, in institutions like the media. Over the past couple of years, from time to time, when unavoidably our situation has been in the media, let me tell you that I have felt it. It's not easy. We see it in religious authorities. 
religious institutions operating in the realm of human power, employing the tactics, the strategies of worldly power, threats, manipulation, coercive, spin. But the manifestations of worldly power are everywhere in the heart of fallen humanity to behave in a worldly way, to employ the weapons of the world. We all are tempted to do it. As Christians, there are occasions in our day-to-day lives, as I said, when we feel it. Work, for example, you seek to live as a Christian, to be open about your faith, and most of the time it's fine, there are no particular pressures. Say you're a teacher, you work away, you run the scripture union group in the school, and the senior management team thinks you do a brilliant job, and you're a great teacher, but then there's an email, or a letter, or a complaint, or a comment, and the pressure begins to come, and you're asked to come in, and you ask questions, and they're very subtle, and they're very gentle, but you just feel a little bit afraid. Or you come up against self-interest, self-promotion, as people try to get on, and you find yourself sidelined, or perhaps tempted to be sucked into it all. Or students. You're just getting on with the business of being a CEO on campus, and I've been in meetings in London with the CU and we've heard of the story of a CU here, there, wherever, just getting on with the business and suddenly the student union turns the heat on because of their statement of faith. Why do you need people to sign a statement of faith? And these young men and women begin to feel the impact of worldly power. Or just in conversations, the dismissiveness, the arrogance. What we believe, how we live, And in our wider society, we're beginning to feel the squeeze of power uh, of the majority, the power of the media, for example. You see, for decades as Christians, uh, we've been part of the establishment in this country. That's been the norm for us, but it's so abnormal biblically. And now we're beginning to live in normality, and you begin to feel the pressure. Now, that's the power of the world. That's how the world understands power. That's how you get on. That's how you influence people. That's how you progress. That's how the world ticks. What about, in contrast to that, the power of truth, or or the power that comes from God, or, or power according to the kingdom of God, or the power that we employ as Christians? And we see it in the Lord Jesus. And notice this, not only in what he says, but in his manner, his demeanour. Somebody wrote to me this week and they were praying for me and us as a church and they said, you need, to, you need to have gospel clarity and gospel manner. It's a very powerful thing, isn't it? Gospel clarity and gospel manner. What about his manner? Well, in contrast to Pilate and the religious leaders, in contrast to their dismissive, arrogant, aggressive self-centeredness or the hypocrisy to see the manipulation, his manner is characterised by dignity. 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 Just think of the Lord Jesus. Think of all you know of him. He's not a doormat. Strikes with strong, but he never lacks dignity, does he? He's full of dignity. Strength. Sometimes passivity. Not to to kind of lie down, but the passivity that just takes the flack and absorbs it. Passivity sometimes leads to silence. Verse 9 of chapter 19, back inside the palace, where do you come from? Jesus had already told him, and he gave him no answer. Very striking phrase that just reminds us that if, if we refuse to listen 
to truth. There comes a point where the Lord Jesus, where God is able to shut the mouth that tells you truth. Happened to Herod. Herod was enticed by John the Baptist, a wonderful preacher. He loved to listen to him and then he cut off his head and he couldn't listen to him ever again. Silence. Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? And he says to Jesus, don't you realise I have power? But the power is not in Pilate's words, it's in the silence of the Lord Jesus. Now, look with me at verses 36 and 37 of chapter 18. They're very important. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest to the Jews. And he's referring there, I think, to Peter uh, taking off the servant of the high priest's ear. And he said to Peter then, no, Peter, that's not what we do. Uh, But now, Jesus says, uh, 36, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then. Yes, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And the point he's making is that Jesus' kingdom and his kingship are not of this world. And therefore, his power is not of this world. It is not worldly power. It is not the kind of power that Pilate knows and understands. It doesn't work like that. Its strategies are different. It's not the kind of power the religious leaders knew and understood and exercised. It is not of this world. Here's how one writer describes it brilliantly, I think. It is never tactical. The power that comes from God, it is only and always truthful. The power of the Lord Jesus is in testifying to the truth about God, telling people to repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand, telling people there is a higher power than any earthly power, the power of God. He came from the Father full of grace and truth to point people to the place, to the source of true power, to God and his kingdom. Now here's Jesus under intense pressure. What is he doing? He is testifying to the truth. There is a higher power. Are you on the side of truth? Listen to me. Listen to me. That's the power Jesus wields, the power of truth. That's his weapon. Now, what weapons do we employ as Christians? What are our tactics as we come up against worldly power in its various forms? You know, we scrabble around, don't we, for tactics. What are we going to do? What does the manual say when you're up against it? Ephesians, Paul talks about a sword. He said, you need a sword. And that sword is the Spirit's sword. And when the Spirit holds a sword, that's a powerful sword. And what is the Spirit's sword? It is the Word of God. What is the Word of God? What is it in our hands? What are you holding? You're holding the living, the enduring Word of God. All that is sufficient for life and for godliness. What is a church? What is a church? A church needs this and people. That's it. That's all. The truth. And our responsibility as followers of Jesus is to speak the truth, to testify to the Lord Jesus, to teach the word of God, to live by this, to submit to its authority as the supreme rule of our faith and our life. That is how we are to live. And if in doing so, we are countered or questioned 
or pressurized, in big ways or little ways by worldly power, what do you do? You carry on testifying to the truth. You do not engage with worldly tactics. You engage with the power of truth. Now, where in the end does true power lie? Just turn to the very end of our passage. How does it end? Finally, Pilate handed Jesus over to them to be crucified. So what's the upshot of all of this? Jesus is hanging on a cross. Pilate goes back to his palace. Where's true power? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Jesus is on a cross. Pilate is in the place of power, the palace. What does it look like? What does it feel like in this world as Christians? It will always look like and feel like worldly power dominates. There are times in history when it feels like God's power is dominant, like at times like the Reformation or times in our history in the United Kingdom. But normally, normally, and everywhere else in the world, and for us now increasingly, it will not look like nor feel like anything other than worldly power is calling the shots. Why? Because we live in this world. The kingdom of God is broken in, but it's not yet here in all its fullness. When we're in glory, when we're in a new creation, it will feel like, well, we'll not feel any worldly powers. It'll be gone. But in this world, it'll look like and feel like worldly power dominates. It will always do so. That is what it feels like. And you know it is. But in the end, how powerful is Pilate, really? It's striking that the most powerful man in the province of Judea could not prevent an innocent man going to his death. He did try, but he could not stop it. Chapter 19, verse 11. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. The power from above almost well, does make Pilate do what he didn't want to do. Worthy power is given and taken. And you see, God on his throne and the Lord Jesus on his throne has every single nuance of this world under his control. Pilate, in his heart of hearts, chapter 19, verse 8, is afraid. He's a man of fear. And so he should be. After all, he sat on a judgment seat with Jesus in front of him and one day Pilate will be raised to life and will stand before Jesus who will sit on the judgment seat in front of Pilate. And the Jewish religious leaders, how powerful are they really? Well, Jesus does not address them in the verses we read, but he does refer to them and it's a little tiny phrase. Verse 11, chapter 19, Therefore the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. That phrase, handed over, comes up again and again in the New Testament and it means those who should know better. Those who should know better. The people of God. The religious leaders. Those who should know better. 
Oh, God will judge them eternally. He'll judge us all. Pilate could not prevent an innocent man going to his death and the Jewish leaders. Remember, Jesus comes out with his crown and his robe and, and hail king of the Jews. Here is the man, here is the man, here is the second Adam, crucify, crucify, and they did. But three days their victory lasted. In fact, it lasted till the moment of his death. It was finished. The curtain was ripped. Worldly power and the power of truth in this world, it feels like worldly power dominates. Whether it's in our culture or in religion or in our lives day to day, it looks and feels like that is dominant. But in truth, the power of truth is far more powerful. After all, on the last day, what will be left standing? The kingdom of God and that alone. In the end, the power of truth prevails. Now let me finish with the heart of the passage, as I said, chapter 19, verses 1 to 3. The scene is of a coronation. Pilate took Jesus, had him flogged, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, chapter 19, verse 1, and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. They crown him, they robe him, and they hail him. You know, we sing these songs, I was trying to think of a song that had all three verses in it. Crown him with many crowns, robed in majesty, hail Jesus. We sing these songs on the basis of the resurrected, reigning Christ. But here is a coronation. Here is a robing. Here is a hailing of Jesus. Here is the king. The kingship of Jesus comes through a cross. And one day you and I will wear a crown. One day you and I will have the royal robes We are guaranteed now around us. One day we will praise the Lord Jesus in a new creation with nothing to fetter our hearts. But for now we follow a crucified master in this world. And what was he crucified for? What was his charge? What was he guilty of? He was guilty of something. He was guilty of speaking the truth. And as we speak the truth in this world, we will not win many victories. The weapons of our warfare are not worldly weapons. We might lose a lot. But we have one weapon only, and that is to speak the truth, to give testimony to Jesus, who gives testimony to the Father. And as we do that, we will come to understand that in the end, it is the only power that will be vindicated, and that every human power, every pretense of power, every exercise of worldly power will finally be defeated. If we understand that, then that is wonderfully liberating. That if you or I speak the truth for Jesus, if you or I give testimony to him, and if you or I lose and I'm despised, or the world thinks we will never be powerful, and it does, ultimately, you and I are following the one who has been crowned as everlasting king, and his coronation will ultimately be seen by all the universe. Every single one of the characters in this passage, Pilate, the Jews, and all the others that we'll read about, one day will stand. And on the judgment seat will be Jesus. And they will be asked to give an account of what they did and what they said 
Let's pray. Our Father, the only thing that will be left at the end of time and that will last for eternity is the kingdom of God where the Lord Jesus will reign with his people in a new creation. And at the inception of that eternity, you and I, we will all stand with the Lord Jesus as our judge. What will he say to us? Lord, we pray that he will say to us all, welcome into the new creation. And Lord, what a wonderful thing it is that we can conclude a passage like this by, in a sense, turning on to the next page of history and to the death of the Lord Jesus to forgive our sins and to bear the wrath that we deserve. Help us now, Lord, as we come to the Lord's table to understand, to be crystal clear what we need to do for salvation. Lord, help us to see. We ask in Jesus' name.